Hello, welcome everybody. My name is Liz Southern. I'm a child development consultant with Braille Institute. And thank you for being here today at our educational series. Uh, this monthly series is a program focusing on topics for parents, teachers, and other professionals working with young children with visual impairments. The topics presented should not be considered a medical or educational consultation, but information to help us better understand pediatric eye conditions and topics. And today we have a very special guest, Brian Bushway. He's going to talk about perceptual development. So Brian is a O&M, a motivational speaker, human echolocator, educator, and the co-founder of Acoustic Athletics. And O&M is orientation and mobility specialist. And I will let Brian take it away. Thank you. All right, thank you all for joining us today. And I'm, I'm glad to talk about human perception because it it really changed my life. I didn't enter into the world of visual impairment until the age of 14 when I started losing my vision due to optic nerve, optic nerve atrophy. And that's when I started having to figure out special education, adaptive ways of thinking, how to be creative with the use of my other senses. And that's what really got me thinking about human perce perception and really perception is the idea how do we use all of our senses to gather information around us in the world and create a sense of reality but more importantly how do we have a an understanding that we can participate and interact with society and ultimately live the life we all want to live that is outside the box of low expectations that visually impairment and blindness usually puts uh, a lot of people in. And I definitely felt that early on was, wow, I still wanted to go out and do things and play with friends and have the adventures and go on activities. But the daunting task of how does a person learn to do this without having good visual acuity or having no light perception at all? So I really started thinking hard and became a student of how we really think and use about our other senses in, in more powerful ways. And it, it, it's interesting that we all know and have heard the saying, you know, if you lose one sense, the other senses get stronger. And, and that is true. But what's really happening there is our brain is adapting. And that's called due to a concept called neuroplasticity, which is neuro the neurons in our heads and plasticity really meaning our brains are plastic, more flexible than we ever thought. So that's really what's happening is our brain is adapting under conditions to practice and learning or play. Our brain is reforming and using the auditory sense in new ways, learning to use the sense of touch in more strategic ways with precision. And so that our the ear and the mechanics of the ear doesn't really get better, but it's way it's the way the brain processes information and the person uses that information to uh, to do things that most people think, wow, how how can a person do that if, if they don't have patterns of light? And so that's really where the hope lies in all of this. And when we're working with students, 
we're we're putting all of these intervention and these protocols and having them practice this skill and learn this concept. Really, what's happening is the brain is changing. And it's been really interesting to see in the last 20, 25 years in neuroscience have really taken an interest in a lot of our, our, our students in the work with the vision impaired population because it, it it's it's a great example and it's it's pretty concrete to see how a person can learn to use a cane more strategically and the cane eventually becomes an extension of the sense of touch uh, the ear and auditory information we have sound localization sound tracking sound tracing and then echolocation which really echolocation is the use of auditory information uh, but it's pretty cool because echoes are different than just hearing a sound source. A sound source would be any person speaking a noise and you're like listening to that sound source. But also what the brain can do is the brain actually will image its environment with patterns of sound. Sound reflects off of objects and the human brain can learn to tell where and what objects are, and that's echolocation. Uh, bats use it commonly, dolphins use it, but it turns out that every human brain is born with the ability to use sound to construct a three-dimensional understanding and reference point of, of what's around them. And the and the studies showed we on my brain and other participants' brains were studied in an MRI machine, and they found that the object recognition parts of the brain are activated by echoes. So the brain actually images in two ways. Our brains are so clever that it will learn to make sense of patterns of light and construct an image but also with patterns of sound, the brain will construct an image. So we can actually say that yes, the brain sees with sound or perceives with sound or has an understanding in three dimensions uh, of what's going on. So a lot of this is sometimes when we're explaining and we're like, how, how, does, our, how does our little kid you know, who, who's totally blind, has no light perception, how do they get a sense that they're standing three feet away from a wall? Well, that's happening because of echolocation. And there's sort of two types of echolocation. There's passive echolocation and active echolocation. Passive echolocation would be any of the ambient noises in the environment reflect sound, a hum of a refrigerator, the quiet sound of anything around us is reflecting off of objects. But if a person desires more control or clarity in their acoustic image, an active signal is better. And we found that a tongue click will serve very well. And there's reasons why the tongue click is, is more strategic, but for most students who are learning it or in a big, larger space, a hand clap will work. A, a cane tap will work. But what's interesting there is that the person themselves has an intention 
and they're making this active signal to look, to survey what's around them to find the objects of interest. So it even has an interesting thing to do with how the, the brain is just postured for, for movement. And so that's pretty cool when it comes to like echolocation that, wow, the, the, the human brain can, 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 can do this. It's been measured. There's been textbooks that have been written about how to do this in with as all the scientific studies that, that, that show how all this can be done. And so echolocation has, has gotten a lot of interest because, right, vision, what is vision? If you have good 2020 vision, vision is best used for, it's a distant sense, previewing your environment, getting information far out there. Well, if you don't have good vision, the next best sense would be listening. The auditory sense is the next best thing for picking up information far away in the distance. And then the sense of touch is going to pick everything up closer. So really to be a mature traveler, what I've experienced from teaching all around the world, in different countries, working in different cultures and with different age groups, that, that wow, it's just the brain can do this it's just how much opportunity does the individual get to actually develop develop these skills and to make make sense of what the cane so it's really a good teaming of all of the information uh, all of the senses really is which makes for a, a strong more more confident traveler so really at the end of the day it's about awareness the more one can be aware of their surroundings, the more freedom of choice they have to move and interact and play in their environment. And for us as adults, we actually, in, in the instructional fields, we like to put a, a lot of sophisticated language around all of this because as of adults, uh, we're not playing in the same type of, of way when we're working with, with young kids. So young kids, they're integrating their senses through play, or we can call it practice. Most people who have 20-20 vision forgot how they learned how to see. It just sort of incidentally happened through movement and play and interacting with others. So now we have a visually impaired child, and they're cueing off. They're not being cued off the environment with the same visual stimuli or they're not having the same encouraging moments to to go out and to try so now we have to be more creative in finding instructional ways to to help them do all of that so the so the brain can do all of this the brain wants to make sense of it, its environment the brain and the body doesn't want to have collisions with things we just have to create and get the brain and the person to be responsible. Hey, pay attention to this. And the brain will start, start doing that over time. And that's, that's what's cool and that's what's happening. And so it, it's really not a matter of can the brain do this or can other people can't. It, it, it's more a matter of what are the learning environments and the conditions that, that a person has to develop all of these skills. 
and and it goes for the cane. So it's using the sense of sound to pick up things in the distance. And even if people are low vision, they're using sound for cues, right? Because most people with low vision, uh, a lot of times with the students I work with, they 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 have night blindness. Or as soon as they they're transitioning in from a bright lighted space to an indoor space, and it takes a while for their eyes to accommodate. So now they're having to really rely on their auditory and their sense of touch to navigate this space or this room until their eyes sort of come back online. And right now, I'm currently working with uh, with like wayfinders, and we have twenty adults in our program, a variety of ages, but most of them are low vision and most of them will actually be afraid to travel at night. And most of them will talk about how if they're trying to use their vision all day to do complicated tasks, they get eye fatigue, they get eye strain, and they'll even end up so much eye strain that it causes migraines and other issues where, wow, if they could diversify the way in which they were gathering information from screen readers or using a cane, they could actually save their vision for when it's sort of most strategically to be used throughout their day. So really, uh, a, a person who wants to be fully competent and work ready has to use all of the senses and all of their resources around them to to get the tasks to get the tasks done and i think i learned a lot actually working with with families so before i worked here and was at o and m i spent most of the last decade before covid traveling around the world working with families with young kids i would even stay in a family's like back house so we could just get a better understanding of what the family culture was and we would just have more time and opportunities uh, of working because working with young kids i found out that wow it's the parents that are the primary instructors and us as professionals we just don't have the same opportunity of time you know one hour a week a couple hours a week isn't just enough time to really get a person fully moving comfortable so i found that really takes uh, a lot of, of family participation and then use the experts to help problem solve when new obstacles and challenges and we need to cut, find a new approach to get uh, you know our student or child to 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 the next level so i was really working in a lot of sort of team uh sort of team you know, situations, but parents had a lot to do with with this whole thing of when we found success. And for any young, any young person, and what we found about the brain is the brain learns best through movement. The brain integrates all of the senses through movement. So the one question everybody wants to be thinking about is how much time is a young person able and allowed to move independently on their own? And so one of the first things for a developing brain, one of the first things I always looked at in a situation was how much human guide was being used. 
Human guide, I would say, in most situations, 90% of the time, human guide was overused for a developing brain. Now, it's being overused, and a great analogy is this. Imagine, it's like being, who's the pilot of their body or a pilot of a car, right? If there's a, per, a family members and the person who always drives the car and everyone else's passengers, then you drive to the same place every Saturday. You're going to the same place, but it's always the same driver. And now all of a sudden you ask the passenger to take hold of the wheel and drive. That passenger has a difficult time in that process because they just didn't do it. So it really takes a lot of moving on a like being a pilot of your own body, a pilot of your own perceptual system is where the, is, is the condition where we start seeing students progress the most. So, wow. Oh, my gosh. Well, what do we do if we're saying you can't use human guide? Well, I'm saying that use it strategically. You got a young age appropriateness. You got a young child and you're crossing streets and it's busy. Hold a hand, walk human guide. But maybe when you're just going on a casual walk, around your house, that would be a great opportunity to get the young person to follow a sound source. So one of the cool, I guess, interventions that I had a lot of families and parents do was get build their own set of mobility keys. And these keys would kind of be have a little clip on them, a little chain with enough keys that really made a good jingle and jangle that was a good clue for a person to follow. So now a parent or whoever is the leader is can just clip it onto a purse or their pocket. So every step that they took, the keys would naturally jingle. And that would be a good sound source for the individual to start following. But they're not holding on. And the reason why we don't want a child using human guide too much is because the brain is learning to perceive through the body of the other person we'd call that a proxy perceiver right and then there could be like a para perceiving which would be like adapting to the white cane and then there would be sort of natural perception which would be some of the natural ways in which we use sound sound tracking localization echolocation so that's one of the fundamental things of freedom of movement is the first thing I start assessing the situation with. How much does this individual have opportunities for freedom of movement? And that's where the senses are going to integrate and the body is going to become more coordinated. So, and the keys work great because it gives an auditory clue of comfort that the child or the new visually impaired adult actually goes okay i'm comforted i do know where that person is and they and they can follow it that way and so freedom of movement move finding more times where a person is not walking human guide but then finding ways that work like developing a set of mobility keys with a sound source that they can follow and then you just you just go on a walk and now they get opportunities and practice to use their cane and the, and the cane works the same way. If the child is not using their cane a lot, then it's always going to feel like a foreign object. 
And what and what is the cane actually? The cane is really a a a a, a tool of performance. And we see this in athletics all over the place. A tennis player using a tennis racket is using that tool to extend their sense of touch and move and interact with their body. The better analogy, I think, is a hockey player who uses a hockey stick. You can't play the game of hockey if you don't have a hockey stick, but also science has suggested that the brain sees no difference from the end of a hockey stick in the end of a hand. So the brain starts learning to extend the sense of touch and perceive through the length of the cane. And it, it works brilliantly. And with a white cane, individuals can hike up mountains and travel anywhere they want in the world if they're using it correctly. So using and teaming the sense of sound with the sense of touch and right and visual strategies are all part of, of, of the package. I don't necessarily see one being better than the other. It's just how competent does one want to be when the lighting conditions go bad? So the idea that there's excuses, eh, it's usually that people just haven't given the full menu of all of their options of what they can use to travel and, and conduct the functions functions in life. So then it takes practice, right? So the first thing is looking at opportunities for freedom of movement. And then it goes like, like precision exercises or practicing. Like even with a young, young child, uh, ball games are great. Right? Does, does playing catch. And one of the easiest ways I found to like modify is simply put a, a soccer ball or any ball in a plastic grocery bag. Plastic bags are easy to find, they're easy to keep, they're easy to carry. And you could just put any ball inside a plastic grocery bag, and now it makes enough noise that a person can use it and play. And I've used that. In my family situations, when I and they're all playing soccer in the backyard, and I show up, and I, you know, I didn't remember to bring my beeping ball, but most beeping balls I find to be a little obnoxious, and I don't even think the sounds of beeping balls are that great for sound vocalization. You know, then there's other types of soccer balls that have little rattles and shakers inside. They're better, but. Then again, now you're having to bring a whole repertoire of adaptive gear with you when a plastic bag usually works just fine to get people playing and integrating. And it comes great for socialization at schools. It's very, it's very easy for other kids to start playing with, with a visually impaired kid in a game of pass. So it allows more opportunities for other kids to come and start start playing and interacting so ball sports in simple games of pass i find to be great ways of developing skills and creating opportunities for kids to socialize with others and then so that would be like an idea of precision or times of practice right our kids and we should have high expectations that they can develop good ear hand coordination ear foot coordination just as well as their sided counterparts 
It's just that they need the tools and they need to develop their skills to be able to do it. And, and we see this, right? There, there's professional blind soccer teams that what these guys do with these soccer balls are absolutely amazing. So we wonder, how did those individuals become so skilled to get there? Well, it took practice, it took play, and it took a little discipline to start, you know, precision exercises, being precise. And then the third part I like to think through is like, you know, travel strategies when it comes to exploring new places. Because that's really the game of the real art of or game of being a visually impaired traveler is how quickly can one familiarize themselves with a new space. That's why we want all of our senses to be as sharp as possible. So when we go into that new environment, a person is can quickly familiarize themselves with a room, familiarize themselves with an outside environment. And so that's why strong perception skills make it quicker and easier to discover landmarks, which then equal freedom of movement in, in any place. And so those would be more, you know, strategies of how one approaches a new environment using their senses. So freedom of movement, precision exercises, and, you know, travel strategies of exploring new places. And we all know that once a visually impaired person is familiar with their house, they don't necessarily need their cane as much. And most of the time, when a, a visually impaired person is uncomfortable, everyone around them forgets that they're even visually impaired until you go into a more complicated environment and then you start observing how the visual impairment is, is creating some unique challenges for the individual to move around. Um, any thoughts or questions from anybody at this point? And if you want me to go in more depth than anything, anyone's welcome to, to pick up or just ask a question. They'll read it if it's in the chat. They'll probably generalize, generalize on if there's some common questions. There's none in the chat right now, but yeah. if you have a question, you can unmute yourself. Um, our, our son, he just barely turned two years old and he hasn't been able to walk, but when he does, should we introduce him to the cane right away or should we wait as he gets more of his balance going? Well, I would, my experience would suggest that you get a cane in his hand right away. Cause right, even if a kid isn't walking, they can start using the cane to extend their reach. They could feel things farther. But I remember working with a, with a, I was in Poole, England, and we had this group lesson, and we had a, a, eight different families there, and we sort of took some time to check in with each family and work with the kids. And they were talking about their, their, their daughter. She, she, she wanted to walk, but she preferred crawling, but she only would walk if she was holding on to both of her parents' hands. And any time they let her hands go, she would go immediately to the ground and start crawling. Well, what we observed was she was feeling her environment in front of her. We didn't have a cane that was appropriate for her size, but we said, well, let's just see what happens if we give her this adult-sized cane. And we handed her this big cane, and we had an adult sort of behind her helping her wield it, hold it, right, keep it. But she put her two hands on the cane, 
and she started moving it around in front of her, and she was on two feet walking, and she walked right over to the playground equipment and started crawling up on it. So it wasn't that she couldn't walk or didn't want to walk. It's just that she was actually adapting by crawling and using her hands to feel the space in front of her. So, so the cane, she was walking instantly when we handed her this cane. Now, balance issues, right? Um, I, learning to balance, right? There's ideas of like stability and things like this. But having that cane for that third point of contact on the ground could even be in an, another additional reference point where she now knows where her body is in, in space. Like, it, I know when I go, like, I've spent time, you know, playing ice hockey and things. And when I just have two feet on the ice, my balance, even though it's pretty good, but your, your body's still a little, like, unsure. But as soon as I even have a cane on the ice or a hockey stick, that third point of touch, my and I'm not using it for support. It's just giving me like proprioceptive information of where my body is in space in relation to the ground. And now it knows what to do and it feels much more comfortable. So I, I am always an encourager of getting the cane as early as possible in someone's hand. And a cane is actually a pretty natural thing. Ancient man, you know, what do we do early on? We picked up a stick and we started poking and prodding things with it. So the body learns how to use that, that very quickly. And a lot of times in Europe, they had different ideas about when it was appropriate to introduce a cane. And for, it may have changed in more recent years, but when I was working there, most you know, schools did not introduce a cane into the age of eight. And they thought it was, oh, wow, the students, you know, they're turning their canes into a sword. They're turning, they're riding their cane like a horse. They're turning it into like a broom and they're flying around like a witch. They're playing Harry Potter. That's awesome in my mind because the cane is becoming something natural in the world. And then they have to understand when it's appropriate for them to use it. But what we found with all these students, if the, once they were presented the, the cane at the age of eight or later, they go, why do I need this? Why do I want this? This doesn't make any sense. It's a foreign object. It's a, it's a weird tool. And that would have been eight years of developmental delay of the brain learning how to use the cane and integrate it. Right? So I'm... Um, in very, I don't, I can't even think of a time when I did not think a use of a cane for a young person was was not really appropriate because it's going to be hard to catch up those eight years of loss later. Thank and, you. We'll definitely yeah. introduce them to the cane as soon as as soon as possible. Actually, yeah. yeah. And, and canes are important, too. Like, not all canes are created equally. And, like, you know, rollerball or tips and things like that. You know, those are those are all different considerations. But I've always found that you want a long cane and you want it to be as light as possible. You don't want it to be anything that's wieldy or hard to muscle. 
because you really wanted to be a tool of sort of precision and, and finesse uh, in, in, in that way. And, and then we found, because a lot of times traditionally for an older adult, they'll put prescribed canes, you know, up to the middle of the chest. But there's something we found with young kids that having a cane that was as tall as them was a natural ratio to their body that the perceptual system seemed to understand, right? Because as we get adults, our arm span is about the same length, is as tall as we are. So our body has these natural ratios sort of built in. And the, so the long cane, I've never really been super worried or concerned about for this reason. You can always make a long cane shorter by choking up to the middle of the shaft, but you can never make a short cane longer. So it actually gives a person many more options on how they're going to use the cane and start learning to do things with it. And like climbing trees. Sometimes you want a kid's kids, you know, a lot of young kids, we do a lot of like climbing exercises because they feel very comfortable they have four points of contact their feet and their hands they know exactly what's going on but sometimes strategically with a cane if they can use it they can use the cane to start feeling where the next things are they want to look at farther than their hand so right so i guess the idea is, is you want the cane to be as natural as as the way which which they're using their hand and then early on too now let's talk, with hands i think it's really important you know some uh, visually impaired kids they'll have a hand preference from one side to the other it's very important early on to start getting them to use both hands strategically to explore things if one person is one hand dominant versus the other well, they're not going to get a full picture and use their hands as effectively. Two hands exploring spaces are, are better than one. And, and then another interesting thing with, with young kids, if you want to get a, like a perspective of the world, get down, adults, get down on your knees, get to their height and start perceiving the world. Backs of chairs sound exactly similar to a, a big wall. Like the spaces are a lot smaller. You're navigating around a back of a couch, a coffee table. Those ways in between perceptually are much different to a person shorter and closer to the ground than us who are taller and have a different perspective. So a lot of young, you know, visually impaired kids, they they can be running around and like they just move around that chair. Well, they heard the back of the chair, oh, object, I don't want to run into it, and so they move around it. Thank you, Brian. We do have a question from Nicole. Mm -hmm. Hi, Brian. This is actually uh, Aaron, but uh, <laughs> I just uh, I, I had a add a couple things actually first to the uh to the family that asked the question first about their two-year-old um just a friendly suggestion that we did with ours um our son's five and uh fully visually impaired and uh, he didn't start walking till about three pretty close to three and we actually got him a trampoline that uh, is a personal trampoline that has a bar inside of it for him to hold on to 
Um, and that helped a lot with his body strength um, to get him to the point of being able to use his legs a little bit more. Um, so just a, a friendly suggestion there. And then um, question-wise, um, when he did start walking, he did um, start clapping a lot. He, he's been doing that um, ever since he started uh, walking. Um, but just your recommendation on, um, you were saying the tongue click, and I was just curious what the benefit of the tongue click is over clapping, and if that's something that we should try to pursue with him a little bit more, and what that, uh, what that benefit would be. Yeah. So the hand clap is great, right? So the hand clap is an indication that he is cueing off of echoes in his environment already, right? He's naturally already cueing in, but we, as, as a very visual dominant culture, don't have a lot of like acoustic, we don't have very strong acoustic vocabulary to talk about it. So one of the things to encourage clicking is like a lot of times if you're going out and there's a tree you want them to get interested in, start clicking at the tree. Instead of looking and describing it first with words, move your focus and say, hey, we're looking at this over here. And you can click and he will hear the echo off of your click. So now you're building in the family culture that, hey, here's the way you look around. Here's the way you see. And so you could start incorporating it and making it very natural by, by clicking yourself. And then the reason why the tongue click is ultimately superior is that the tongue click is located in between the ears. So that's better for sound localization. The whole head is a resonating system right? It's not just our ears, right? We have outer hearing and inner hearing, right? Bone conductive headphones work on vibrations sort of inside. So, so it's the click is also sort of strategic in that and the way sound is produced and heard. But then again, the click can also be made really quiet or really loud. Now, the reason why you want to change the volume of a tongue click is that if you're looking for a smaller object up close, you want you want a quieter click to bring focus because smaller objects get camouflaged by the larger ones behind them. So if you have, so always using a hand clap, oh, it's awesome. But to refine that as it gets with time, he wants more detail that signal could be too loud to hear some of the smaller objects and get detail. So a person is, is always sort of changing the volume of their active signal depending upon what it is they want to find and where the distance is. And most of the time, the tongue click is less distracting than a hand clap. So socially, it might not always be appropriate to be clapping all the time where a tongue click can be made very subtly and strategic occasionally to get the person to have the information that they want. And the tongue click we found in social situations, most sighted people are horrible with listening and nobody really ever hears the click or they don't really know where it's coming from. So socially, I have found over time that that is, is it, it's, it, because, like, I don't know, 10 years ago, people used to think, isn't it odd to be walking around clicking? And it's like, no, it's not, because nobody really knows what you're doing. 
And guess what? They already saw your white cane from even farther away than they can hear. So any prejudice that this person may have had, they've already labeled it by the time they're hearing it. But if you're not using a tongue click, you have chances of running into more things. Running into more things will actually make you look more blind than having uh, you know, a stronger understanding of what's going on around you in that space. So yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. So, like, that's a great point. Um, we have another question from Elizabeth Castillo. Hi. Um, so me, this, my child is the only blind person um, that I know. Um, and so uh, maybe you said it in the beginning, but is there specific classes or YouTube videos or something that can help me really understand how to get him to do the clicking correctly. I don't, since I don't know, I don't want to create a bad habit and I don't know if that's the case when it comes to the tongue clicking or as long as he's doing it, he'll figure out his way, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's one of those things you don't really have to over teach. You just have to encourage it and, and making any active signal is is better than not for long term and in infants can do this there there they've there's been studies where before they can talk infants can make a tongue click even before they walk so it, it, it it's it it can happen it, so yeah in the tongue click so quality tongue click you want it to be clean and sharp uh, but it will refine with time. And yes, there are YouTube videos that that sort of model and and and, and can demonstrate that. Um, so if you just search echolocation, you'll find videos of myself. And there's other instructors around the world who who, you know, I I guess have specialized in this. Uh, but but really, you know, when you walk into like think of like it, it, it's sort of like finding in his parents it's about you would go sightsee and look for cool like things that made you go aha but think mm -hmm. about the same we go to like a grand canyon and everyone starts hearing the echo and they start playing with the echoes those are environments to fight uh parking structures make great echoes from standing on the outside so you can clap a hand and the game is, is all right now we spin our bodies around and can we clap our hands and turn our bodies to where we hear the echo coming from? And then, you know, then you would say, okay, what can we hear if we click? And so, yeah, there are exercises like to help people develop and, re and refine their, their tongue click. Um, but I'm always available for other questions and things like that, that you guys can get my email address if you have more questions and things like that. So yeah, it's out there. I wouldn't overly, you know, over teach it, but anybody, you know, can learn to click. And that's just the more normal it becomes, the more useful it's going to be for everyone involved. And this even, I saw this even happen with uh, kids who are resistant to using a cane. They didn't really want to use a cane because no one else in the family was using a cane. So guess what? Everybody in the family now gets their own cane. 
And so the whole family now goes on a walk and they're all using a cane because this is just what we do. And then now the, the little person starts using the cane. They go, oh, I'm, I'm, this is just what our family does. And then they start using it and are practicing and it became a normal thing as opposed to their special thing. So, yeah. And what are your thoughts on the belt cane? Have you ever heard of the belt cane from Safe Toddles? My son didn't like to hold the cane when he was little. And um, that was one thing that I got for him. But it was a little hard for him to navigate with it because it moved a lot. Uh, and he had to keep bringing it back to center. Well, luckily, he just learned to use a regular cane. Yeah, I have found some of those some of those things maybe work well for a little bit of time to sort of encourage a curiosity in a movement. But I've found that just getting a getting a white cane qu quicker and sooner than possible, they'll figure it out pretty pretty quickly. And then also, you know, challenge your kids too, right? I mean, there were teenagers. I don't know if everyone remembers Ben Underwood. It was a he was an African American boy. He went on Oprah maybe ten years ago, and he was a teenager that got a lot of media attention for only using echolocation and he was resistant to using a cane. And there was a like a month long documentary that's taken a look at his life. They somehow came to the organization I was working with at the time. And he says, all right, Ben, huh, you don't want to use a cane. Well, guess what? We're going into a place with a bunch of holes in the ground and no one's allowed to walk human guide. Well, he couldn't keep up with the group. So he through like trial and error. He was a teenager. He was like, man, maybe if I had a cane. I would be able to keep up with the group and not feel more safe, right? This is all about, like, how much connection do we feel with our physical environment? And we will have physical anxiety if we're not connected to our physical environment. So for a young person, having that cane will help them feel more in control and just help them feel more safe. Because the, right? the genius of the cane if you're walking in step, and that may be a little difficult to get everybody as a young kid to do right away, but as long as the cane is in front of them and on the ground, it's previewing where their foot is next stepping into space. And mm -hmm. that incredibly does a lot to calm the brain and any sense of anxiety. Am I stepping off a cliff into oblivion? Oh, wow. Oh, the ground's right there. I get it. Okay, I can take another step. So it becomes, the cane becomes very helpful in uh, just connecting one to the ground. Brian, we have another question in the chat, and you kind of touched on this already, but um, she's asking, how can I get my son to walk with his cane independently? Yeah, I'm curious. Well, if he's been walking human guide for a long time, Guess what? His brain has learned to see the world through the other person. So now asking him to walk with his cane, you got to give a little respect for him. You're asking his body and brain to do something very challenging and uncomfortable. But it, because he's not used to it, right? Our brains, want, we, we as humans, we like to take the least path of resistance 
And young kids are incredibly good at manipulating parents or teachers around them to stay in their like comfort zone, where our job is to figure out ways to keep expanding their comfort zone in providing the skill sets and the tools that so that they can do that. So that's probably why he's resistant to use a cane, because it's just easier and safer, and it's what he knows. And so some methods we found with kids who, who didn't want to use the white cane, but we wanted them to not hold on, is we, we created a chain with a rope, or a train, I mean, with a rope. And so we played games where we're all getting on the train together, choo-choo, and, like, the, the parents holding the rope, and maybe there's another family member holding the rope. And then there's, uh, you know, little Johnny behind who's visually impaired holding the rope. He's holding the rope and we're all doing this together, but he's not holding on. So he doesn't have that same kinesthetic body feedback that, that he's used to. So that, that rope train game is, sort of, is an example of something we've done to encourage him people to use a white cane uh, but at a certain point you may just have to you know draw a line depending on where he is like in his developmental stage and be like nope this is the way you're going to travel but then again giving him that set of keys to follow the family or a sound source to follow like those keys that will jingle will say hey just follow these keys and you could play games games of chase are great well, how does the young blind person know who to chase? Well, you put a sound source on the on the person that they need to chase, and then they can follow and go run after them. So really, it's about, you know, a lot of it is like thinking of adaptive, creative ways to sort of put a clever sound source on the moving pieces. It, it, and I find this too. A lot of our the young visually impaired kids, their inner world is so rich in their imagination that it's more interesting than what's going on outside. So part of the challenges is making the outside physical environment more novel and interesting than what's going on in their head to get them to be called out to take an interest in the in the external. We have uh, another question from Rachel. Mm -hmm. Go ahead, Rachel. Hi, are you able to hear me? Yes. Okay. Yeah, um, I just wanted to get your opinion on, I guess you could say, like, handheld clickers. Do you mm -hmm. find that there's a difference between um, emitting a sound from a handheld clicker as opposed to a normal tongue click? Yeah, so often if a if a student is not, you know, if they're feeling weird or apprehension about a tongue click or they just, it, it, for whatever reason, they're just not into it right away, yes, we'll use a hand clicker. Or what I have found is wooden castanets. Now, wooden castanets, like tiny, like, wooden castanets are cool because you can hold them in your hands you can click them to make an active signal but because they're wood it makes a, a more of a like organic natural sound than a plastic clicker but the plastic hand clicker is 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 good and is a good useful tool to learn it but the hand clicker only makes one volume it 
the hand clicker is usually pretty loud. And the hand clicker is usually like too loud for many indoor environments. It can still work, but the hand clicker is so far into the distance that, you know, it's 50 feet away. And, and so it's just relevant. So as a teaching tool, yes, I use wooden castanets and hand clickers. But the thing to consider is, is like, what, what, like, how good is that signal that that castanet or hand clicker is, is making? Like, the, they're not all the same. So you have to give some consideration. Is this creating like a good, sharp, clean signal? Uh, but yes, hand clickers are awesome tools that I use. And I usually have a, you know, when I, you know, group lessons and things that I'm introducing echolocation to, I'll have castanets and hand clickers with me to introduce all this. But the guide all dog right. schools. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. But the guide dog schools yeah. are funny. They don't like the plastic hand clickers or the metal ones because that's what they train the dogs with. So that's oh, okay. Right? So that's also why we took that consideration, even though it's a good tool. Uh, but that's why we sort of started thinking about the wooden cast the nets, you know, in as different. But they're both great, and they and they both can work. Um, Thank you for that information. Yeah, we have time for one more question. Does anyone else have a question for Brian? I guess not. Um, so, Brian, is it okay if I put your email in the chat? Uh, yeah. I mean, the best thing to go would be uh, brianbushway.com. Okay. And if you, yeah, you can put my email there, but brianbushway.com would be the best. My email address is there too, would be the best way. Okay. Type that in the chat. And I guess well, let me get your your Wayfinder email. Is that okay? Yeah, it's fine. Okay. Alrighty, those things are in the chat. Brian's website and his email address. And um, thank you so much, Brian. This was awesome and thank you all for joining us our next um, educational series is on july 11th at two and it will be about navigating ieps individualized education programs with the schools thank you guys yeah thank you all for joining and have fun with your kids find creative ways to play have hope that the brain will adapt they will learn it's just creating more opportunities for freedom of movement and good luck to you all and if you have more questions or just like ideas about games and fun activities to do um there's there's a lot of them so i look forward to hearing from you guys so thank you